With your Bibles or your Bible apps, um, would you turn with me to the Gospel of John, the 12th chapter? Today on this Lord's Day, we'll be in John's Gospel, the 12th chapter. We'll begin in verse 20, um, but as we come to God's Word, let's pray unto the Lord. God, our Father, it's good for us to sing hymns and songs and spiritual psalms to live praise up to you, but to also address one another with these and to sing the song of coming behold the wondrous mystery. Behold. May it be that in our time in the scriptures that we would see Jesus. Not just to learn more Bible knowledge, maybe to pick up something that we've not seen before, but to see Jesus. To so know him that we would follow him and to follow him in his way so that we would so shine as he has shown into our hearts. So show us Jesus again, Father, by your spirit. Thank you for this word that we have. What a treasure and a gift it is that we too often neglect. May we be a church that continues to devote ourselves to your word. And may your spirit illuminate it in our hearts and resolve it in our lives so that Jesus is magnified with who we are together. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's go to God's word. We'll begin in Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Some of these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. 
Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not, does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is God's word. And it will accomplish its purpose in our lives. The hour has come. We've come to this hour of this Lord's day. This day. But what is the number of your days? We all have a fixed number of days upon this earth. Even though we're all looking forward to try to get to some future day, we sometimes will waste away a day. Tomorrow is my mom's birthday. Tomorrow my mom turns 77. Tomorrow she would have lived, she will have lived 28,123 days here on earth. I thank God for my mom. I'm 45 and a half, so today I've lived 16,619 days. I was born December 29th, 1973. Um, That's a lot of days, thousands of days. 365 at a time through each year. What is the number of our days? And also tomorrow is my mom's birthday, but to help me out too, I also asked my wife to marry me 24 years ago tomorrow on the side of Interstate 81, but that's a completely different story. In his only song of the Psalms, this is what Moses writes in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Thousands of days we live, and Moses exhorts us, Lord, teach us to number our days. We're running around thinking we don't have enough time. I've lived 16,000 days plus. The Lord has given me a wondrous life. He's given me all the time that I need to accomplish his purposes in my life. And I can say that I don't have enough time in a day. One of my favorite podcasters, Daryl Harrison, wrote this this past week. Are you living with eternity in mind? Or are your affections fixed on what this passing world has to offer? Every, every millisecond that ticks by brings us much closer to when we will see God face to face. Never lose sight of that. Salvation is at hand. But time keeps slipping and it's slipping and it's slipping in the future. But for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. A time for everything. Days are going by. This past Tuesday, our church softball team won our fourth game. 12 to 6, 55 minutes, just time going by. And Miss Sadie right there, my compatriot in the infield, second baseman throwing it to me at first. This past Wednesday, one of my good friends turned 40. This past Thursday, my parents celebrated 49 years of marriage. This past week, because I've seen posts, I've seen prayer request. Tragedy has hit. Loved ones. In the matter of time and moments, tragedy, sorrow has hit. City Light, I want to know, do we know what time it is? Romans 13 says this, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
we're coming to a passage where Jesus says, my hour has come. Well, City Light, our hour has come. It's time to put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. This is now the time. This is the hour. And so since Easter unto today, we've been taking a time of a season as a church to consider our purpose together as a new congregation, as a unified congregation, a, a city light, a Jesus saves church. We're going to shine the light of Jesus in knowing and following him. That is the hour that we've come to, to put on light and to walk in this wicked and crooked generation and to shine as stars. That is the hour we're now to. And so for this season, for everything there's a season, this season since Easter, we've been going to different places in the scriptures to look at topics of discipleship. And today we come to the topic of dying. Dying to live. Dying to shine. Come with me to John 12 again. Verse 20. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. Which feast is this? This is the spring feast. The early spring feast of Passover. And every year there were three major festivals. Feast in that would begin with Passover in early spring. Then later spring would be Pentecost. And in the fall, there would be tabernacles. And every year, there would be pilgrimage back to the holy city. That they would sing the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms 120, 134, and, and traveling up to the, the holy city. Passover, remembering our deliverance out of Egypt. Pentecost, giving God thanks for first harvest. Tab tabernacles, like remembering that God is with us and he has provided for us even in a later harvest. We're here now at the Feast of Passover. Once again, after generations, we're going to recount how God has delivered our forefathers out of Egypt, out of bondage. And so they would share a meal. There would be bitter herbs to remember the bitter hard service in slavery in Egypt. There'd be a roasted lamb to remember the Passover that in the plague of the death of the firstborn, that Israel was instructed to, to smear blood of a, a lamb, a blameless, a, without blemish lamb, over the doorpost. So when the angel of the Lord came over Egypt, he would pass over the Israelites and spare their, their lives. But death would come to Egypt in judgment. So they would eat a Passover lamb. They would also have unleavened bread because the departure out of Egypt would be hasty. There'd be no time for it to rise. And there'd be other minor parts of this meal as well, along with wine at different points. And Jesus has celebrated this for years. And he's now come to this Passover meal, but this is no longer an ordinary week. This is no longer just an ordinary Passover meal. Because on this Sunday, to begin this week, at the beginning of John chapter 12, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And the crowd took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. This is how this week began, is with triumphal entry into Jerusalem, hailing Jesus as king, the long-expected Messiah king. And you know how this week ends? There, there's a stone over top of a new tomb where Jesus' lifeless body is buried. That is where we're left on Saturday of this week. 
hailed as king on Sunday, but by the end of the week, he is dead and lifeless in a tomb. What has happened this week? On Monday, we know that he cleansed the temple courtyard, flipping tables of money changers, this court of the Gentiles. And now we see in this passage, Greeks who are requesting to see Jesus. Perhaps these are Gentiles who had seen Jesus. Maybe they saw him from a distance being hailed by the crowds on Sunday. Maybe they were there as he enraged, crying out that my house is going to be a house of prayer. You made it a den of robbers. Maybe these are Greeks who saw this. And what do they do? They came to Philip, verse 21, who himself was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Whatever the connection, here is the request. They go to Philip. There's 12 disciples here. I mean, there's a a crowd of people who believe in Jesus, but 12 men who he's called specifically to an office. And here's they go to Philip. Let's choose the one who has a Greek name. We ourselves Greeks. Philip meaning lover of horses. Remembering maybe the Greek king, king of Macedon, Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Greek. But then Philip's like, I don't, what do I do with this request? And so he grabs his buddy Andrew, who also has a Greek name, and then they go to Jesus. They're really probably not sure what to do with this request. Because all along these past three years, Jesus is saying, we're going to the Jews. When he sent Philip and Andrew and the other ten out on first mission, he said, go nowhere among the Gentiles. Enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Matthew 10. There would come a Gentile woman begging for the deliverance of her demon-possessed daughter. And do you remember what Jesus said to her? Let the, little, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I mean, there, there were Gentiles that Jesus ministered to, but that was not his focus. Even that woman who begged gave a, a good volleybach answer. Well, even the dogs eat off the master's table, and he healed her daughter. He would go into Samaria and minister to the woman at the well, who then would go into the entire town and tell her who Jesus is. But his focus in this ministry for these years has been to the Jews. And so Philip gets a, response, a request from the Greek, these Greeks. What do we do? That's not what we've been doing. That's not been the program. And please, as we read the Gospels, do not take this and then say, well, Jesus is bigoted. Jesus is racist against non-Jews. Jesus' call was to proclaim the kingdom of God to the people of God, Israel, in that day. To fulfill Old Testament prophecies. The time had come and was coming when this Messiah King of Israel would be proclaimed to the nations. And we can turn the pages of the New Testament and to see this mission explode to the Gentiles. You don't have to turn many pages to see even a Gentile at the cross, a Roman centurion, say, truly this was the Son of God. It's it's building. 
But here on this day, what is the request of these Greeks? Verse 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now I know that that's just a request, probably for an interview, a little FaceTime, but that is a thick request there. That is, there's so much in there. We wish to see Jesus. Philip, we know that you know him. We know that you followed him. We wish to see him. And this does have to carry the context of, of having an interview with. But this, this should be like any, every time you're like greeted by the Connections team and you walk in here and you see me like, Derek, good to see you this Sunday. I wish to see Jesus. Like, I'm here and we're going to preach and sing again, but I, I'm here because I want to see Jesus. Do we wish to see Jesus? This would be our prayer that even unbelievers would approach us. I wish to see Jesus. They may not phrase it like this, but they may say, well, you're a Christian? Tell me about your faith. What does this mean? What do you mean you believe in a God who came into flesh and then died in the flesh and rose again in the flesh? Is now in heaven. Do we wish to see Jesus? They approach Philip and ask. And this is our mission statement together. This is our purpose statement, shining the light of Jesus and knowing and following him. It begins with shining because that, that's kind of what happens when we know and follow him. So knowing and following Jesus precedes shining the light of Jesus. We don't get to shine the light of Jesus if we don't know and follow him. But then let's break that phrase down. Can we really follow him if we don't know him? So it really goes back to knowing. Now this is not a linear progression. Well, if you know Jesus, you follow Jesus, and you shine. This is a cycle. The more that we follow Jesus, the more that we know him. The more that we truly follow him, the more that we'll shine. The more that we shine, the more we're going to want to know him. It's a cycle here, but it begins with knowing. If there's no knowledge of Jesus, there's no following and no shining. Knowing is the origin. Do we know Jesus? Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Until we know Jesus, there will be no movement to follow, no movement to shine. We will just be inert, a body without motion. Some of you know I taught science. This is Newton's first law, that a body at rest will stay at rest unless an outside force acts upon it. How are you going to shine the light of Jesus? How are you going to follow him? Are you just going to, what is it? You're a body at rest. We are dead in our sins, our trespasses. How, how are we going to make ourselves alive and start following and shining? We have to be acted upon by an outside force to give us inertia into the Christian walk. And this is the outside force. Jesus saves. He saves us. We're born again. We're brand new in his kingdom. We're citizens of heaven. We're ambassadors for Christ. And we're compelled in love for him to proclaim this good news and to so love others because he's loved us. But do we know him? Not our cultural conceptions of Jesus, not our personal sensibilities, but biblical revelation of Jesus. 
One of my favorite books early in discipleship was J.I. Packer in Knowing God. He says this, a little knowledge of God is worth much more than a great deal of knowledge about him. Did you catch that? It's all in the preposition there. A little knowledge of God. Do we know him? Just to know him a little will do us so much more than knowing a whole lot about him. Do we know him personally, relationally, communally? Do we know him? Sir, we wish to see Jesus, is the request of the Greeks that day. Verse 23, Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Strictly speaking, he doesn't even answer their question. He doesn't give a direct response to their question. You're going to see that all through the Gospels, even in our text today. But at this very moment, the Jewish authorities are plotting his death. It's all coming together for them in this this week. But now Gentiles are, are clamoring for his attention. And so now there's a trigger that just happened. There's a a signal that's now happening at the fullness of time, even on this hour. Up to this point in the Gospel of John, the hour has been future. Do you remember we were at a wedding, we ran out of wine in John chapter 2? And Jesus' mother comes and said, do something. I I was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. I know you can do something. And you remember what he said? Woman, what does this have to do with me, my hour has not yet come. Do you remember at the well in Samaria? But the hour is coming. It's now here when the true worshipers of God will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. John chapter 7. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because the hour had not yet come. But here in verse 23, he says, the hour has come. This is the fullness of time, which Paul speaks about in Galatians and Ephesians. He was born under woman, born under the law. This is the fullness of time. This is the hinge of history. But even in the fullness of time, we're now at the hour, the hour of this week. We're now coming, Father. The hour is now here for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's now time. The Son of Man is going to be glorified. And if we know the book of Daniel, we know that the Son of Man comes in victory and is on the clouds like like one of a Son of Man. Now's the time for glorification. Where is glory? And we would say, oh, it's, it's victory. I wish you could have been on the sofa with me and my sons watching UVA's magical run of the NCAA championship this spring. This really March Madness, where UVA was like pulling out last-second wins and overtimes. It was glorious, this victory. Do you remember last year? I'm sitting there with my sons, and we're like the number one overall seed. We're playing number 16. No number one has ever been defeated by a number 16. Some little campus at the University of Maryland This is what Coach Tony Bennett said last year about that historic loss. If you learn to use it right, the adversity, it will 
buy you a ticket to the place you couldn't have gone any other way. He described last year's gift, or last year's loss in 2018 as a painful gift. There is actually a peculiar glory in losing. What seemed to be a loss was a peculiar glory for that basketball program. Let's not over-spiritualize it. But sometimes I do want to use that as illustration. Sometimes we go see of glory as triumphant and victorious, and it's always with a crown upon our head. The Son of Man is going to be glorified in this hour. His disciples are perplexed, maybe even excited, hopeful. They believe him to be the Messiah. It's going to happen. He's going to be glorified, even though he's told them what's going to happen. Are we really going to overtake Rome? Are we really going to have God's kingdom back here on earth? Is this going to really get restored? But how is he going to be glorified in this hour? You know the story. They did not in that hour. See, we read this story and we go straight to Sunday when that tomb is empty. We're going to sing Christ has risen in this service and Christ has risen. That's our victory. That's our glory. But there's a glory before that glory. There's a glory on Friday in his crucifixion. He's going to be exalted to heavenly glory. He's going to be raised out of a tomb, but there's a glory in the raising up on Friday. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I mean, we just get our fruits and vegetables at the store, but if you've got a tree or a garden in your yard, you know you plant a, a seed and it dies in the ground and it germinates. Death comes, life comes through death. Death is necessary to bring forth life. And this is the way it will be for the glorification of the Son of Man. See, we followed him for three years. We're expecting him to be the Messiah King. The example to follow. The one to give up everything and follow. But will we be there at the cross? Will we believe him still to be Savior, Messiah, the Christ, as he hangs there at Calvary? They would all scatter except the women and John. See, but Jesus is saying that he saves us by dying for us, and this is glorious. And he's trying to teach them, if you want to serve me, you will die also. Because whoever loves his life will lose it. If you hate your life in this world, you'll keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant may be also. If you serve me, my Father will honor you. So these are, this is polar opposite ways of life. Jesus is not creating a gray spectrum here. It's either, do you love your life? You'll lose it. Do you hate your life in this world? You'll keep it. Do you love your life? Now, it's good and right to praise God for the gift of life, to enjoy life, even to give God glory for a good drink and good eat and <coughs> praise Him in His creation. Loving life here means that you're loving your life because you're keeping it for yourself and your kingdom and your ways and your dominion. Hating our life. This is not self-harm. 
This is self-denial. Now be careful here. In the word, in the, the English here, we use, just use the word life. But the first two occurrences of life here are the Greek word psyche. So do you, do you love your psyche or do you hate your psyche? And this is means the life of the mind. This is your personality, your will, what you think, how you act in the present, how you plan for the future. Your psyche must die, Jesus says. Our psyche must submit to Jesus and serve God's will. If we hate our psyche, then we'll keep it for life to come. And there's a different word here for life. That third occurrence of life, it's zoe. It's the divine life. And so there's a life that we can hold on to for ourselves and personalize and it's just us, but there's a divine, eternal life to be experienced. And this divine, eternal life is only experienced when we allow this that we're trying to grip and hold on to and control to allow it just to die. Jesus served the Father in obedience. In His psyche, not my will, but yours be done. He would even pray and cry out. And so he calls his followers to do the same. Service to Jesus requires submission. When we call Jesus Lord, that's what we have to believe him to be. When we sing, reign in us, or take all of me, these can't be platitudes. That really has to be the prayer of our hearts. Reign in us, take all of us, whatever you want. For however you want it, we cannot have Jesus and our own way at the same time. But if we have Jesus, then he'll give us a new heart, and even the desires of our heart will be into his way. I know, Jesus, I wanna, I wanna, I'm going to serve you with my money, Jesus. I want to... You've given me, I've got a job, I can work, and I, I'm not as rich as I wish I had more, but, I, but I'm going to serve you with my money. Oh, first offering? Generosity to others? When it means I can't get that for myself? Jesus, I will serve you with my time, but you do know what my schedule is for this week, right? And we can, I can work you in this. If you need me to, will we, do we have spirit interruptions that we'll allow for? Jesus, I will serve you with my commitments. But please don't infringe upon my recreational life. Jesus, I will serve you with my public persona. What about when there's more ridicule and rejection awaiting that? Will we be so public anymore? Jesus, I will serve you with my love. Okay, how about these different and difficult people? Will you lay your life down for them? When they're not necessarily going to be the, the common friend in your demographic with your best interest, but it's just going to be hard? Man, how hard was it for him to walk around with these people for three years? Just always laying down his life when they're not getting it. And he's loving them day after day. The way of Jesus is dying to ourself. Something you've heard in churches before. There was a man in the 1800s, name of 
George Mueller in England, he founded many orphanages. He would say that he cared for over 10,000, he provided places that cared for over 10,000 orphans. And the crazy thing about him is he didn't go out there and have a good capital campaign to get money for this. He just prayed. This is how the Lord worked through George Mueller. And he prayed, and the Lord provided and continued to provide. And provide. He, he was more of a prayer warrior than a capital campaigner. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he ministered with many of the others of God's kingdom there in the 1800s. When he was asked one day about his effective ministry, this is what he said. There was a day when I died, when I died to George Mueller, when I died to George's opinions, to his preferences, his taste, his will, when I died to the world, its approval, its censure, died to the approval or blame of my brethren or friends, and since then I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Unless a seed falls in the ground and dies. What is it that in us that needs to die today? We can't have it both ways. We can't have the will and will of God in the way of Jesus and our will in our way. Our will in our way has to surrender and submit to God's will. And it's not out of like a strict taskmaster. The thing is that the life of the Spirit This is the secret, friends. The life of the Spirit is such that our will and our ways become conformed to the image of the Son. And we're not wrestling with God all the time. Actually, He gives us His heart. So that we're not only fighting Him all the time, we need to put the sin, we need to put a sin of flesh to death. But the ways that we walk into is grace that He's now changed us as we've surrendered to Him. But if we don't surrender, know this no one can serve two masters. You either hate the one and love the other. You can't be devoted to one and despise. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. Look at verse 27. We're here in Jesus' passion. Now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. But Father, should I pray, save me from this hour? For this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. We're now in chapter 12. In chapter 14, you're going to read the beginning of chapter 14 in the upper room discourse. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Chapter 12, midway through the chapter, he's saying, my heart is troubled. Chapter 14, he's saying, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me. Do you hear that dissonance? Like we're hearing the humanity of Jesus crying out of being troubled in this hour. And yet he still serves to minister to others to say, don't let your hearts be troubled. Why is he troubled? Are we troubled? I mean, if we're not numbing ourselves continually, do you ever just let your heart feel troubled? You just look around and you're like, what's happening in our culture? What's happening in the American church I'm troubled of soul. Troubled by the news. Trying to, what is happening in the raging of nations? What's happening at the border? Having conversations with people this week. Well, what do we do? What what is happening? What is going to happen here? 
We're troubled by the death of loved ones. The families who now have to go to... We're troubled. Father, save us from this hour. Are you troubled of heart today? Jesus doesn't want his disciples to be troubled of heart, but to believe in God. But why doesn't he practice what he preaches right here? And there's great mystery if we come behold it. For eternity past, Jesus has experienced perfect personal communion within the Godhead forever. From eternity past, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Don't put a time on it. This is eternity past forever in his essence and being. Jesus has had perfect union with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And in obedience to the Father, he incarnated and came. Creator becomes creature, born of the Virgin Mary, in the frailty of flesh. There's a leaving of heavenly glory and a stooping that we will never surpass. The distance from heavenly glory to being born in Bethlehem. He could pray, he would steal away and pray to the Father. But now unto death. I mean, there's physical torture waiting. There's going to be beatings and so forth. And we can, we can glorify that or magnify that. But do you know what he's most troubled by? Is this separation of fellowship with the Father that he's known forever. I mean, it's, it should... Just like echo our, to reverberate our souls when we hear from him cry from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the horror of death and his ardor of like obedience which is now met together in condemnation from God for our sin, my sin. Now is my soul troubled. It's not physical death, it's broken fellowship with the Father in judgment for sin. And so please, let's not read the gospel story and make Jesus some victim of human history, human circumstance. This is not divine abuse. Jesus is the willing servant of God, now in the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. And even though there's a cross to endure, he did it with joy. There's so much happening here in this passion. He's troubled of soul, but he's resolved in spirit. Father, glorify your name. A voice comes from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. I totally forgot about this. I, I read this again this past week, and I'm like, I forgot about this. I knew there was a voice from heaven at the baptism, this is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. I remember that. I mean, what a way to start public ministry, but to have the affirmation of your father before others say, this is my beloved son. He begins his ministry in belovedness. I remember that. Then I remember the transfiguration when he went hiking with Peter, James, and John. And again, there was a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am pleased. Listen to him. I had forgot about this one at the Passion. I have glorified my name, and I will glorify it again. But this voice has come for your sake, not mine, Jesus said. 
We needed to see the witness, needed to hear the witness of heaven for this work of Jesus. Look at verse 31, 32 and 33. The hour is now come and Jesus is going to die and what is now happening? Now is the judgment of the world. The death of Jesus will be the judgment of the world. And for those who believe and trust upon him, this is our judgment. This is our judgment that our sin deserves death and there hangs the creator of all, the author of life, dying in our place. This is the judgment of the world. But, but if, we, if we hear of Jesus, we've heard the story, and if we reject him, then that also is our judgment. We're judged in disbelief of this great sacrifice. This is our only hope of glory. There's no other name by which we can be saved. It's to believe upon this one who died in our place. And do we believe this? Do you believe this this day? Do you believe that this is your judgment? Do you believe that you are a sinner before a holy God? Do you believe that this sin is death? That's the wages you will get for your sin because God is good and God is holy. What else is happening here at the death of Jesus? The ruler of this world will be cast out. It would have thought that the death of Jesus would have been the triumph of Satan. But it's the exact opposite. By dying for the penalty of sin, he triumphs over the power of sin. I mean, I'm still trying to get that. I mean, that, like synapses are like going off. Do you get that? By dying for the penalty of sin, he overcomes the power of sin. So much so that the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. In him, Colossians 2. What's going to happen at the death of Jesus? He will be lifted up from the earth on Friday. He'll be lifted up in crucifixion unto death. On Sunday, he'll be lifted up out of the grave in glorious resurrection. Forty days later, he's going to be lifted up unto heaven on a cloud in ascension. These are all the glorifications of Jesus. Do not just tell me the resurrection and the ascension is the glory of Jesus. Look to the cross. This is a peculiar glory that saves us, that serves his Father in glorification. And by this he will draw all peoples to himself. This is where we began. A couple Greeks just asking to see him. And we're now on to this dialogue with Jesus. In his lifting, both Jew and Gentile, people from all nations, all languages, all cultures, he'll draw all. Please, do not misread this. This is not a universalism in which all people are saved. This is a global promise by which all peoples will be saved. There will be people from all peoples before the throne of God. And this is happening now at the fullness of time. Verse 34, the crowd answered him, we've heard the law that the Christ remains. Now you say he's got to be lifted up? Who is this son of man? And do you see here again that he does not give a direct answer? We would like just more straightforward, clear answers. And Jesus' answers are always 
wrapped in mystery, wrapped in otherworldliness. They were expecting triumphant king. They weren't ready what was going to happen. And so he instead speaks of terms of light and darkness. The word was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is how John's gospel begins. Chapter 8 of John's gospel, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. He'll speak about light when he speaks to Nicodemus in chapter 3. Healing a blind man in chapter chapter 9, he's going to speak of light and darkness. Chapter 12, in his passion, he speaks about light and darkness. And here's the call. Believe in the light. Before the darkness overtakes you, believe in the light. This is the call, the call to believe. What is the promise? Become sons and daughters of light. He also gives warning. Don't delay. Light has been revealed. If you do not believe in him, darkness will overtake you and eternal darkness will await you. How is Jesus glorified? Through death. Jesus loved God, served God by dying at the fullness of time at this hour. He died for us. Not a helpless victim, but a willing servant. This is how light overcomes darkness. And so City Light, at this hour, in this time, I'm calling us, shine the light of Jesus in knowing and following Him. There's been many topics we've talked about the past many weeks. They will all be nothing if we do not die to ourselves. If we don't learn to figure out how to learn this, to not love our life in this world and so lose it, if we can learn how to hate our life and so keep it, if we can learn to just be a seed that will fall and, and die and be able to germinate and to bear more fruit, how do we shine the light of Jesus in this hour and in this day? We die to ourselves and serve others, and we lift Jesus high. Those are the, that's the point. We, we die to ourselves, we serve others, and we lift Jesus high. Now I pray that the ministry of the Holy Spirit will help us figure out how to apply this. How does this get practically into our life? How's this going to get practical to the person in need that God puts in your path this week? How is this? I'm in an exchange right now with somebody, and they're just like, my soul is troubled by the news of, I know that there's sorrow and suffering around the world, but with roots back in Texas, I don't, what is true, what's not true? And what is the church, what is the Christian's response to suffering? What are these good works we're to walk into? What, what happens when you just thought that your, your knitting community was just a, a place to just exchange yarn and now it becomes political strife? Those are the conversations this week. What does it mean to now live this out in these spaces? What does it mean that beyond this hour you go back to dysfunctional family or dysfunctional workplace? 
What does it mean? This is all platitude. Die to yourself, serve others, and lift Jesus high. What does it mean to get outside of our comfort zones and to get in cross-cultural ministry? My heart was blessed on Thursday night to get into a world that I've not been in, to worship with the black church, and to hear a story, and just be there to serve. What does it mean to die to ourselves, serve others, and lift Jesus high? What does it mean to do that in a church merger? We're learning. And so, Spirit, would you please show us how to apply this into our lives? Why? There are people here in this world, whether they verbalize or not, it's, Sir, Madam, we wish to see Jesus. And that was the trigger point for Jesus to say, now the hour has come. Well, if God has so saved us, if Jesus saves, and that's now the force that propels us, the hour has now come for us to put off works of darkness and to put on the armor of light, to die to ourselves, to serve others, to lift Jesus high, so that many more see him. This is how we shine our light. But it starts with us knowing Him. And do you know Him? Let's pray.